0: This is an ABC podcast. Midnight madness in Melbourne. Oh, these rallies. Wow. Ridiculous. What a shot.
1: Just when you think you have seen it all.
2: Welcome to the ABC Tennis podcast we are coming from Rod Laver Arena pretty packed Rod Laver Arena they appear to be doing tours they've got the trophies on show so the silverware is out but the main thing is the two Johns are here John Alexander and John Millman so much to discuss on the podcast starting with the Australian Open playing tennis yet again after 3:30 a.m. we talk about scheduling Yelena Rybakina is out After the longest tiebreaker in tournament history or super tiebreaker, that means we're a podcaster down because John Millman predicted she'd win the tournament, but all is forgiven because thanks to Mr. Millman, the ABC Tennis Podcast is through to the second round of the doubles main draw after a massive day yesterday on court six. The only one... With a bar. Now, we're going to talk more about your match later. You'll be pleased to know that we did in-depth analysis on your performance for the pod, along with our amazing producer, Lauren. So that's coming up later. But how have you woken up? Because it was a big day, playing tennis all day. Then you're commentating at night.
1: Yeah, I've woken up a little bit sore, but nothing that a bit of mobility, pre-hit mobility can't fix. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. The atmosphere out on that party court. I got to admit, when I first heard it, I, I, I was a bit apprehensive. How was this party court going to work? You know, what would the players think for a doubles
3: match? It was awesome. We were in the heart of the party section, we and loved I thought the party. we we were behaved beautifully. I mean, Catherine, you were exemplary and you contained yourself well. Um, a ball did go over the fence, and Catherine went and chased it, retrieved it, and then thought, "Oh, it's still new. I'll wait until John's serving and I'll throw it back." That's
2: I did that now. It's if marginal. anyone's listening, these are just allegations that I became a ball kid during John Millman's doubles match. But here it is. The ball well, I, so I allegedly, allegedly. Now, in my defense, actually, this ball was quite fluffed up and you were about to serve, John. I'm. I'm holding the official AO 2024 ball. I've always wanted to be a ball kid. And I was saying to Lauren, our producer, Lauren, can you sledge their opponents? Because they're right next to you. Like, say something so bad to them that they're coming up to us saying, say that to my face. This will help you and Ed Winter. But when she refused to do that, I thought, I'm going to take one of those old slow balls out of the mix. What do you think, John? I'm a ball kid now.
1: Marcus made mention that there was, uh, you know, a couple of ladies in the corner there that were sledging them. (laughs) He wasn't happy in the dressing room. (laughs) And now I know who the culprits are.
2: Well, there you go. Now you have an official tennis ball from your first round win. I'll I'll try and ball kid every match. I need more training. That's the only thing. I beat someone in a foot race to that ball. Allegedly. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. This is no. a
3: self-confession. Is no more allegations. I mean, you're well, allegedly, self-incriminating.
2: Allegedly, I, allegedly, I, a I got a officials f- approached me and I just simply put in my handbag and ran away. Alleg- but anyway.
3: Allegedly, I pushed somebody <laughs> over and grabbed the ball.
2: <laughs> There's no video of that, J.A. That you know of. That we know of. But seriously, we loved it, John, because you didn't get a wild card from the tournament. You've been really classy about it. I think you should have got a wild card for the tournament. So, And I know you're not the sort of person that's going to buy into that, but it's so good that you got to win a main draw match. But what we want to know, is the ABC Tennis Podcast going to win a Grand Slam?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe in retirement, maybe I'll come back and we'll do the legends, you and me, J.A. We could maybe lift that one. But no, there's a long way to go. We've got a really challenging match in the next one. Ebden, Bopana, Ebden. This tournament, playing for world number one, we are killing it in doubles in Australia with Storm Storm Hunter being the number one female player, and Ebden having to get through us potentially to be that number one male player. But Eddie and I, you know, we're still the dog in the fight, and we can we can do all some all right things. That'll be a world of that'll do a world of good for Eddie. That was his first main draw win uh, at a Grand Slam. So. As much as um, I was enjoying it for myself, being able to progress, I think I was a little more happier for my partner. He was so chuffed uh, in the cool down area. You know, he was buzzing. Um, he's just got some really good character skills about him. He leaves no stone unturned in his preparation. I just love
3: what he's about. So I was super happy for him, actually. The highlight of the match for me, when you won the first six points. Hey, you, you served first, very modest. You won you know, at love. <laughs> you got up love 30 in the, in the second game. And these guys, were like they knew they were in a match straight away. But your volley, you, you poo-pooed your double skills. Your volleying was maybe the best on the court. I had a day. Yeah. You volleyed well. You picked up some incredible reflexes. And, and your, your court savvy was great. And you were the, the senior player. And I think uh, Eddie just you know, seemed calm. He played beautifully. You both played beautifully. We won't say any more, otherwise you'll get a big head and not talk to us anymore.
2: One more thing that I have to ask, because we're missing the top story, and look, I often do. John, you're not retired. You're going to play doubles this year. You're going to go to Wimbledon, and you're going to play doubles.
1: No, that's definitely not the case. This is 100% my last tournament. Hopefully, a couple more doubles matches in it. But no, I'm sorry to the people who... We're encouraging <laughs> and and for, I. The, for, the, for the dream to live on, the two people. Um, this will be the <laughs> absolute last tournament. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm very content. And I think that's a, a, in a, a good place to be in. When, you, when you're content, you feel as if you've you know ticked that box in, in your life and time for new challenges.
2: Well, Lauren and I are relieved we have a normal day at work today because I can say live TV, I do it happily all day, way less stressful than watching you play doubles, John. We got way too invested. Okay, talking about super tiebreakers, what a day it was. Let's start, though, with Daniel Medvedev at the Australian Open playing tennis past 3.30 a.m. in the morning. So much talk about scheduling in the build-up to this event because of what happened to Andy Murray and Thanasi Kokonakis last year. But yet again, here we are, J.A. Well,
3: scheduling was one thing, but things just kept on going from bad to worse because where it started to unravel was quite early in the day when without any forecast of rain, it it pelted down. The roof was wide open, took a long while for it to close. The court got wet, took a long while to dry, and they got behind and behind and behind. And then the first match last night started late, and it was a magnificent match. I mean, it was the 22-20 in the tiebreaker, and Anna just fought and fought. One of the match points down, I think she saved four match points, she was so far out of it and she scooped two back and, and, and Elena's big hitter on both sides and you'd think she was dead and somehow she got back into it. Uh, she She was beaten time and time and time again, but then finally got up and she did one of these fantastically witty um relieved after all that tension um witty uh interviews and she said that her hands were shaking and then she thought about it and my legs were too she was just really cute and she so deserved that win it was again sad to see somebody lose but uh it was the sins of the women playing so long that made the men suffer it was the opposite of that in the first day when Djokovic went long and made the women suffer and go on very late, albeit uh, uh, they sort of completed their match quickly, so it wasn't such a late finish but uh, it was a number of things, but I think they've got to be better at when it's going to rain. They've got to get that roof closed quickly so they don't don't lose time.
2: And the thing is, at a tournament, and I was working at the Sydney International in media management way back. You were in that tournament, John, actually, where there was really bad rain. And they actually have a meteorologist that they call in four meetings every morning. Now, I wouldn't know an isobar from a Mars bar, so I'm not on this podcast to, like, criticise meteorologists. But there is a guy on the line that they're calling. Even players would know about that. And are you saying, like, how are they getting it so wrong when they have that person to call?
1: Yeah, it's really challenging, though, because if you start, a match in certain conditions they generally try to finish the match in those conditions they don't love
2: okay. yeah they don't love
1: shutting the roof mid-match because that's a massive change of conditions now obviously they will do it when you get a full covering of cord but I imagine they would have seen this front coming over I, I was watching it on the on the Bureau of Meteorology also because I was following it to see when I was going to get back on the cord or whatnot and they were small little patches but Unfortunately, like a magnet, they are attracted to Melbourne Park.
2: And yours, your match was especially difficult because I think you came on the court for one game at one point and you had to leave again. And when you're, everybody is managing, managing injuries, right? To get cold, to come back out again, the condition's changing. It's really tough.
1: Yeah, yeah, really important that you are trying to time those moments before you walk back on the court after a delay that you're, you know, ready to go. Um, after the second one we came off with, we, we had a not-before time, so that made it a little bit easier. Um, and I spent that time kind of relaxed in the change room, talking to Marenko Matosovic a lot about the thompson pass match, and Carlos Alcarez, us three, we were sitting on the couches. He was super relaxed. I never even knew we had a match that day. You really? have, he well you was wouldn't that have relaxed. Gu- yeah, you wouldn't have guessed it because he was lying on the couch completely chilled. Um and believe it or not, we were talking about mullets, the haircut. And
2: Carlos uh, wanted to know why they're so prevalent in Australia.
1: Well we were seeing some footage and there was a little kid who would have been eight years old and he had a really nice, filthy mullet happening. And <laughs> Filthy yeah, we, we were asking Carlos what this was called in, if you go in the hairdresser in Spain, what would you ask to get this? And he goes, no, 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 it's the same, a mullet, mullet, you ask for a mullet. Uh, and then we came to the conclusion that perhaps with his sponsors, Rolex, Louis Vuitton, that maybe the, the mullet isn't necessary for him Yeah. Otherwise, he might be turning those Rolexes into Casio contracts pretty quickly.
2: He might. I. This is a sign I've lived here too long. I thought the mullet was quintessentially Australian. I don't think Irish guys are going around with mullets. Am I wrong?
1: I'm not sure about the Irish, but apparently there's a couple of <laughs> Spanish barbers
2: that do it.
3: Well, like the U-
1: would you ever consider like a U- mullet,
2: U- J.A.? Did you ever have one?
3: Probably, but it would have been just accidental. But it's like the ute was an Australian invention. The cement truck was a, uh, an Australian invention. Victor, you know, turned grass into lawns. The lawnmower was an Australian invention. The, the mullet was an Australian invention. It's just the rest of the world a little slow picking it up. Spain's coming on. We will We the
1: world. It's one to be proud of
2: if that's how you it's look little, at it. It's
3: a little fishy, but I think we'll do it.
1: I and think you sh- could pull it off. You know, business at the front, party at the back. You, you could pull <laughs> that off, J.A. What yeah. about
2: for next year's Australian Open, a mullet from UJA?
3: Well, it'll look more accentuated because there'd be more hair coming in the, in the rear and less hair on the front. So it'd look,
2: <laughs> it would look Earthy. stupid. Come no, on. No, it no. would look great. And we should point out that you must have really inspired Carlos Alcaraz because he was under pressure for a while. Maybe he was just super relaxed. So in the end, he defeated Lorenzo Sonego in four sets, six, four, six, seven, six, three, seven, six. But I love that you're just chilling on the couch with him, John. Now, someone who had to wait a long time to go on court was Isla Tomjanovic. And I always feel for her or any player that is such a huge match and you're on the bike in the locker room, you were still commentating because Thanasi Kokonakis was out on the court against Grigor Dimitrov. She is looking at the clock. She's trying to stay warm and stay focused. And in the end, a three-set loss for her. What did you guys make of Isla's performance?
1: Well, they kept, I did feel for her because during commentary, they kept on doing cutaways to Isla. And she was, she'd was she clocked up that many kilometres on the bike. It was like she'd done a stage tour in the in the Tour de France, but look, she started off a little bit slow, but I think you have to give credit to Ostapenko who came out gunslinging. I mean she was firing on all cylinders. I went back home and actually watched a bit of the match. I have to say I haven't watched as many I know what Ostapenko's about, what she brings to the court, but I haven't really like properly sat down and watched her play. Her antics are something else, aren't they? They're the best. Oh my goodness. I couldn't believe it. She questions every line call. Um, she turns to a box and pulls these faces as if to say, you know, what's happening. Uh, it was actually, um, very entertaining, but look, Isla did a really good job. I'd say probably a tactical toilet change, uh, toilet break after that first set. She turned things around bit by bit. Ostapenko's misses started to happen. Um, and she really she she got into the match, didn't she, JA? Yes,
3: she did. I mean after losing first at sixth lap. I mean it's a big thing to get over, but uh, taking a little break, calming herself and
2: And in it, just nineteen minutes, which must be tough. It must feel like the blink of an eye when that happens. When you're served up a bagel in nineteen. Yeah.
3: But um Penko is you know her charming charming of her box is just extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, do they get paid extra for copying that abuse? But uh her intensity, on the other hand, was alive and well, regardless of the hour. and She seemed to have the energy throughout the match. And uh, you know, As Isla said before the match, she respects her as a tennis player, and I think that uh, should be left there.
2: The one thing that Elena Ostapenko has said, which I really loved during the tournament, she said... Or that she was asked if there's one thing you could change about tennis, what would it be? And she said she would bring line umpires back. She doesn't like Hawkeye. She clearly doesn't like Hawkeye. That's a bit of an understatement. But do you think she just wants someone to fight with, hard to fight with a computer, right?
1: Oh yeah definitely. And I don't know if I'd want to be a lines umpire in an Ostapenko match. Uh, that would be a scary prospect.
3: Well, I think People like that think that if there's a person there they'll be able to intimidate them and uh, get them to yield to the uh, you know and take the path of least resistance and you know there's been players in the past have been masterful uh, at you know getting more than their share of close calls because of the fear of the lines person being abused and because uh, you know the rest of the year they're um, they're sort of you know, pedestrian people they're not used to being abused and castigated in front of thousands and millions of people on television and, millions, and millions of people who listen on, the, on our on, oh, our on our the podcast, podcast. Yeah. never
2: mind i heard on the commentary last night and pardon my ignorance on this i think it was jim courier over the past two nights it's all a blur said there is room for a margin Mm. of error with Hawkeye. Okay, that was last night. And I'm sitting there going, hang on, I thought we got rid of the humans so there could be no possible error. And that's why I'm finding it so funny when Ostapenko is challenging a computer. What is that margin for error?
1: Three millimetres. So there's a margin of error of three millimetres on Hawkeye. So, yeah, if you see something that's inside that three millimetre mark, perhaps uh, that falls within that range.
3: But you're on the court. You know when the mark is out and it's been called in. So have you actually seen uh, errors?
1: Um, oh, that's a tough question, Jay. I haven't really given it much thought. Uh, I do know when they do that supersonic zoom, uh, you know, and it shows the, the ball mark on Hawkeye But could the zoom be a, wrong? A could the actual metre? zoom
2: create... I, I An think, image that's wrong.
1: I think that w- it might be three millimetre margin for error, but I'd I say having a lines person calling it, that margin for error would be a lot higher.
2: A lot higher. I think
3: the thing is it stops all argument, and it has been um, very effective in doing that and keeping the play going, and it's fair, it's indisputable. It's, what if it's you
2: miss the arguments, J.A.? Like me, I like a bit of drama. I like a bit of a subplot. Don't look at me that way. Well, right. You should go and
3: watch a <laughs> watch a good movie. I mean,
2: this is a, you know, <laughs> it's a game of tennis. <laughs> what,
3: one of the interesting
1: things, though, is that some of the smaller tournaments—not these Grand Slams that generate a lot of money—but some of these smaller tournaments, the ATP 250s, for example, WTA 125s and 250s, that now are required to have HawkEye to do their line calling. Um, it's it it comes at an extreme cost it's very expensive to run from my memory what someone threw out it's something like fifty thousand dollars a day to have hawkeye running on a court and doing the electronic line calling at least that's what it used to be a few years ago uh, i don't know if they've been able to reduce those costs so you can see how those expenses would be piling up at a smaller tournament and it's why at at some smaller tournaments, you know, it's actually detrimental to the success of the tournament because of the expense
3: of running electronic line calling. Well, one of the funny things, you know, old habits die hard. But I think it was Lorenzo in yesterday's match. There was a very close call and it was called out and he he circled the mark as if he was playing on a clay court. Old, wow. Uh, it was a pretty funny little sort of lapse of where are, where am I? But um, And, you know, he was quite sure that the ball was out. And uh, he and Carlos had had some great interchanges. There was one fabulous point where the ball went over his head. There was the tweener from Carlos. There was another incredible drop volley. And uh, whatever happened at that point, it was one of the best points. And uh, he sort of went up and gave him a high five after the point. I loved that. That was good stuff, yeah.
2: That was one of my favorite moments of the tournament, the way they both – took in the moment to acknowledge they are creating this sublime tennis and they actually take a moment to go, look at us doing this for the crowd. I love that. And it was such a good point that I can't recall who won it either. I think it was Lorenzo. It was Lorenzo with, with a, that a won final
3: that. backspinning drop shot. But yes. I thought it was just their absolute personal enjoyment out of the the, oh. the event. And uh, that's what they were celebrating as if there was no one there. Wow, that was just I mean, it was exhilarating for them to to play that point.
2: And it really matches up with how you saw him lying on a couch in the locker room. It really strikes me with Carlos Alcaraz. He looks like a guy that really loves playing the game. And to do that when you're a Grand Slam winner with all these endorsements, all these extra commitments, all this expectation, but yet he seems to just love it.
1: Yeah, no doubt. That's what... Rings true whenever you speak to him. He loves the game, loves competing. He's obviously idolised Rafael Nadal growing up, and he embodies all of that Rafael Nadal spirit. I also see it as a sign when you're lying on the couch that you're also supremely confident. Like he is very confident in how he's playing. He's confident um, in his place in the inside the locker room. You know, he's one of the big dogs. He knows that um, he's a pleasure to be around. But, you know, Carlos knows that he's good and can probably
3: spend a few more minutes relaxing. Well, I think you and Ed need to mark that couch. And just before your next double <laughs> match, each of you go and lie on it and sort of, you know, get into that spirit. Absorb That's all you energy. need. A little, little bit more confidence. I might do that. You'll go all yeah, the way. Yeah, we might do that. I might do yeah, that. I think that's...
2: Talk you, to you me. Channel him. Channel yeah,
1: him. You've, yes. got the, you've got all those little trade secrets, don't you, Jay? Oh, I've got a few Jay's
2: your... Like official coach for the rest of the tournament pretty much let's talk about big dog status in the locker room when you're a big dog what's it like what changes tell us how that works the hierarchy
1: inside the locker room i mean some of the the guys have a couple of extra lockers I think that that's probably a sign. So instead of the one, there's a few of the guys that might have two or three lockers.
2: What are they putting in three I'm lockers? Not, I'm not
1: totally sure, but I think that that probably gets up to big dog status. But inside the locker room, not a whole lot. Obviously, outside of the locker room, there are, you know, there's, let's not dance around the issue. They do get preferential treatment to court time and what courts they want. There's no doubt about that. But inside the locker room, apart from maybe the extra locker, there's not a whole lot um, happening there. It's more the aura that they have, the presence. When they come in, you know, people draw a breath for a second and, okay, you know, Carlos is, Carlos is here, you know. Um, so, yeah, look, there's that, I would say, is the only thing.
3: I used to score a good locker at Wimbledon, one of the members. Guy called it. He's a, quite a successful actor, American Charlton Heston. So I always thought I was like Moses. But it was funny because you know his name was beyond it, and the, the uh, locker room attendants thought it was sort of funny to put me in the same. Must have thought I looked like Charlton Heston, I guess.
2: I think that's got to be the reason. Yeah, that,
3: yeah, yeah. I, but, I don't know why it took so long for him to sort of tweak to it. Yeah. But <laughs> speaking of of lockers,
1: you know, at U.S. Open. Former champions, that's a permanent locker for them. So they have their little plaque on there. A bit bit intimidating. Yeah, I think that that is, especially when you see someone like Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic who's had really a lot of success at the US Open. So they've got their plaque there and then all the years they've won it. Yeah. Really rubbing it in. It's it's a pretty cool thing, though. I I think having a, a locker after you, that's the locker they used. A little bit of history at the tournament.
3: If you had a bit of wit about you and you'd lost three times in the first round, you could put a big L there and then the years that you lost in the first and then a little, this is my year. I, I don't know if
1: they would keep that, though, J.A. I don't know if that would be a permanent fixture. I think a little
3: graffiti. Uh, that maybe, could
1: be... maybe inside. That could work. Yeah. It might, you know, escape the prying eyes of the USDA.
2: Love it. What about Novak Djokovic? When he walks into the locker room, is he like, hi, everybody? How's your day been? Has he got headphones on? How does he approach it?
1: No, Novak's quite open to all the players and and his team. I know, I think it's it's probably, um, uh, I think probably think that he might be a little bit more reserved, but he's very open. Uh, A lot of people uh, seek his advice and he's very willing to give it.
2: He has been talking about the ways he relaxes during a massive tournament. And one of those is really getting back to nature. I think the official term is tree-hugging, J.A. Have a listen.
0: That. It is true. There's, there's one particular tree that I've been uh, having special relationship with, so to say, in the last 15 years. But that particular tree, I cannot reveal which one. No, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it... You know, discreet for myself when I'm there to have my own time. And um, yeah, I just like to connect, ground myself, and connect with that old friend. I got connected with that tree. I just liked it and I liked its roots and the trunk and branches and everything. So I started climbing it years ago, and that's it. I have a connection.
2: There's so many ways I could segue out of that grab about Novak and the special relationship he has with a tree. He wants to be discreet about which tree he's having that relationship with. We've all been there maybe at some time in our lives. You see, there you go. I may have done my last ABC Tennis podcast. What do you make of that? Like, I'm from the countryside, and I love farming. I love horse riding. I love getting back in nature, and I know the feeling that gives you. But I'm going to admit I've never gone up to a tree in the botanical gardens and started a relationship with it. Have you, J.A.?
3: No, no, no. It's, it's a bit King Charles, isn't it? Because he talks to trees and things like that. Um, at least he did when he was just a prince. Um, it, it's interesting, but I think what he's really saying, and you know, he speaks beautiful English, but you know, maybe the, some of the nuance he's he's not aware of. But I think what he's saying is he really likes to go and have the tranquility of being amongst trees and nature, and that's his way of winding down. I think that's very understandable. And you imagine playing in the the, this arena and having you know, 15,000, 18,000, whatever it is, cheering and screaming and the intensity of that to actually go somewhere quiet where there's just trees and birds and, you know, the odds Just
2: one special tree, though, J.A. He's uh, loyal. He's yeah, loyal well, maybe person. that just means, yeah. He's not going around to all the different trees.
3: A, yeah, he's got a, you know, he's, he's got fidelity with this tree and he's not playing the, the field and the paddock and the, the forest. I don't know what to say. Come on. It's (laughs) a hard one, John. I'm still overthinking some
2: things I've said and wondering if I'm in trouble. But give it your best shot. Uh,
1: I don't know. Who's to question? Probably the goat. If I had a tree, though, it'd be a gum
3: tree, I reckon, if I had a tree. They've They've got a distinct smell. And I can remember practicing in California, and there was gum trees, and the smell was familiar, and Captain Cook had planted them there. Exactly.
1: You know, quintessential Aussie. Yeah. Gum tree. Home among the gum trees. Gum tree for me.
2: That's the perfect way to end our tree hugging segment. Thank you both. Now yesterday was a big day for upsets as well. Jessica Pagula is out. That was a big one. She is out of the Australian Open. She lost to Clara Burrell. Our friends at the AO show talked to the winner of that match.
3: First top 10 win of your career against a player who's done very well at this slam. What do you think gave you the edge today?
0: Uh, Honestly, I don't really know. I just came to the match pretty confident, uh, knowing that I can do something that I can win. And I think it was the key to believe in myself uh, today.
3: Um, you're still quite young. This is a pretty big milestone today. Do you have any other goals for 2024
0: in your tennis? Uh, yeah, I have a few. I wanted to uh, make it to the top 50. I think I'm really close now. So, yeah, uh, maybe being seated for the French Open and then I would love to play the Olympics at home. That would be a dream.
3: And your next opponent is, uh, is another French, uh, French woman, uh, Océane Dodong. How well do you know each other? Do you know each other's game at all?
0: Uh, a little bit, yes. Obviously, we know each other. We never played before. We practice a few times together. But, yeah, obviously, we know each other, and I'm sure it will be a, a great match. And
3: for Australians who might not know you, um, how would you describe yourself both as a tennis player on the court and off the court?
0: <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'd say um, I'd like to to be funny. Uh, yeah, I just enjoy the moment. And, yeah, just... Smiling,
2: (laughs) I don't know. That was Clara Burrell speaking to our friends at the AO Show. You can hear more of this conversation on the official podcast of the Australian Open, the AO Show. Let's look ahead to today's action quickly. Two massive matches for the Australians. Let's start with Storm Hunter taking on Barbora Krychikova. I've just realised, and I hope I'm not wrong, will be editing this podcast for the first time if I am. Didn't she break up the doubles partnership between Katerina Siniakova and Barbora Krejcikova? They'd won multiple Grand Slams, had Olympic success. Storm Hunter comes along and thinks, I'm going to break up your doubles partnership in an Olympic year. And now she has to play against her. This just got juicy, J A.
3: Spicy. Wow. <laughs> this is days of your life. This is uh, General Hospital and whatever else there is, all wrapped into one. The intrigue, little home wrecker.
2: She is a tennis homewrecker nice. and she's really open about it. She broke that partnership up. Those girls play at the Olymp- at the Olympics together. That's you know that's but, special John.
1: But did did she break it up or or this doubles merry-go-round happens so often in the men's and women's side? Some successful partnerships have formed. Kulhof they finished the, the year world number one, and they they split up too for for, for out any rhyme or reason. I I can't for the life of me understand why really successful partnerships stop
2: maybe they just look it's, good from the outside but on the inside of that relationship maybe it's deeply flawed
1: i'm i'm unsure but you do have to spend a lot of time with one another so when yeah. you, it, it is almost like a forced relationship and at times i think you probably get sick of each other so the, at the end of every season there's this open market for for doubles partners and it happens normally around the the Shanghai Masters that's that, that's known fact on the tour that okay guys who's looking to split up there's there's words Shanghai happening.
2: forces Whoa. these couples to split.
1: Well, it's more more the timing of it. It's after the U.S. Open. We've just done the the we're about to head into the European swing and and that's
3: when people start looking for their new partners. Should this be formalized and they have like an end of year like they have in the AFL and they have yes. You know, Bid England That's and really like the, the English, uh, the the Indian cricket league, and people could get paid for swapping partners or f- or more. Oh, you can have the, the fifty dollars of my lunch
1: accreditation the, the partner, the partner. The partner do you has, get
2: fifty dollars lunch accreditation? I think
1: we get a bit more here. Uh, it changes at every tournament, but yeah, you can That's get big dog yeah, status yeah, right you there. Can I'm get I'm a bit you can
2: get
3: You can get a little bit more of my accreditation each tournament if you play with me. Yeah, you could get an extra serving of strawberries and cream at that tournament in England. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Which tournament that? It's a that? pretty
2: good tournament, that one. I quite like it. Not bad. Yeah,
3: it's going to catch on. They play on, on grass, of all things. Oh, it's got no legs then, J. <laughs> <No. laughs>
2: what about Alex Dimonor, a guy who has unlimited lunch accreditation money at this tournament because he's the world number 10, taking on another Italian. As you said, they are everywhere. Flavio... Caboli, he's playing on John Kane Arena. I like this for him. Just off Rod laver, hopefully just fuss-free going through to the next round.
1: Well, it's definitely the type of matchup that Alex appreciates. We've talked about it. I thought against Milos Raonic, really uncomfortable matchup there against the big serving one-two punch of. Rainage, I thought he was a lot more impre- impressive against Arnaldi, where he could really sink his teeth into it. And he'll get another type of match against Ciboli in that Arna- Arnaldi build. Ciboli has had a lot of success on the clay courts. So he's an, he's a baseliner. They'll have these long, drawn-out rallies. I just think Alex does it a little bit better. Exactly,
3: exactly. Similar games, Alex just does it better. He's quicker and... Uh it's a pretty certain win, and it, but it's also pretty certain that he'll get a really good workout and a really excellent preparation for the next round.
2: Well, it's time to wrap up for today. We're going to wish you good luck tonight, John. We'll be there, your support crew. I can't promised ball kid duties I just feel like on Kia Arena they're going to be coming after me if I've got balls in my handbag I just don't feel like I'll get away with it best of luck before we finish are you okay with the nickname they're calling you on TV is it the windmills yeah. winter and millman
1: yeah Peter Pasaltis came up with it in commentary actually with me uh the windmills I like it yeah I like it I don't know what the celebration would be
2: what would the celebration... Yeah.
1: Don't know. Maybe I'd have to something. hold Eddie up and spin him
3: around or something. <laughs> you, could, you could take your groupies to lunch.
2: You have so many groupies that we can't even get into that topic. And there's
3: chaperone. Rockpool?
2: Oh, yeah. Sorry. Are you calling Lauren and I groupies? I was What hungry. else would you
3: two be called yesterday? Well, i mean, Actually...
2: Please. The guys in the stand, there was a group of guys that were so obsessed with you. One of them had a t shirt on saying he was in a relationship with you. Another guy was writing songs for you. And poor Eddie Winter, he had one dedicated fan that wasn't queuing up for you and waited for him, and that made me happy for him.
1: Yeah, but look, Eddie's gonna he's got his career ahead of him. We'll come back and revisit this moment in ten years. No one will know who the heck I am, but they'll all be queuing up for Eddie signature. Don't be modest.
2: Well, best of luck tonight, John. And, J.A., best of luck to you as coach of this doubles partnership. I just hope the ABC Tennis Podcast makes it to the next round. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.